Chapter 12 of The Cliff Dwellers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynette Calkins, Monument, Colorado. The Cliff Dwellers by Henry Blake Fuller. Chapter 12. Cornelia McNabb's campaign against the tenants of the Clifton proceeded apace. Such as pleased her fancy or promised adventure to her future, she attacked one by one. She made quite a succession of engagements, dropping here and picking up there, until she reached the point where, for as many hours of the day as she chose, her time was occupied, and occupied to her taste. We have already seen her in the office of the Underground National, and we may now see her in the office of the Massachusetts Brass Company. She did good work within the limits she had set for herself. She was accurate and fairly rapid, and therefore was in considerable request. I'd a good deal rather work around like this, she expounded to Ogden one day, than put in all my time in one place. Lots more variety to begin with, and lots more pay. Most everyone gives me half as much as I could get in any single office, and then I can skip around and have more of a show. You can talk about your rolling stone. That's all bosh. Cornelia was now doing a daily stint of an hour or so in the office of the brass company. This hour came in the middle of the forenoon, and the work was oftener performed under the severe eye of Mrs. Floyd than our young amanuensis could have wished. Mrs. Floyd's presence in the office had always been rather frequent, and her prejudice against female stenographers did not operate to make it any the less so. She bestowed considerable scrutiny on Cornelia, and Cornelia returned the interest in kind. She recognized in Mrs. Floyd one of the minor lights of society, and she became more deeply indebted to her for points in costume, speech, and behavior than either perhaps realized. Mrs. Floyd was generally accompanied by Mrs. Wilde. This provided Cornelia with a double course of instruction. She learned what to do and what to avoid. Mrs. Wilde was generally accompanied by her handbag, and that receptacle was capable of an endless yield of documents calculated to irritate and perplex her brother-in-law. Mrs. Floyd encouraged this. Who, indeed, should take an interest in the affairs of her own sister, if not her own husband? One morning Anne produced a memorandum that stunned him. As he studied it, she stood above him like the spirit of bankruptcy. For heaven's sake, Walworth, tell me what it means. Am I a ruined woman, or what? Floyd glanced at the sum total, the figures mounted high. They have struck you pretty hard, that's a fact. It was a bill for special assessments levied on the possessions of Anne E. Wilde in one of McDowell's subdivisions. Paving, so much. Sewers and water mains, so much. Stone sidewalk, so much. And eighteen dollars and a half for a quarter of a lamp post, wailed Anne. Why, Walworth, I haven't got the money on hand for all this. I never anticipated such a thing. What's a quarter of a lamp post good for? asked her sister. I suppose the cost is levied on four property owners, said her husband. And who's going to see by it when it's up? asked the disconsolate investor. Nobody ever goes past. Not this year, perhaps, but there'll be plenty next year. You've no idea how the town is spreading about. Why don't you step upstairs and see McDowell? Who starts these things going? asked Anne. 
Who fixes the amounts? I guess it's done sometimes on the petition of other owners about, according to the frontage. And who's the principal owner all about there? demanded Anne. Ain't it McDowell himself? Well, I don't suppose he's sold off very much yet. And so he's taxing me to make his own property more valuable. I like that. I'm glad I went to him. And your young Ogden, I suppose I can thank him for this. Good gracious, Anne. McDowell is taxed, too. The town's growing, and all outlying property is subject to such things. And don't blame poor Ogden. What more can you expect, Anne, in such a half-baked place as this? queried his sister. Go up and see McDowell, repeated Walworth. He can tell you all about it, when it's payable and how, and whether there's a rebate or anything. He passed the papers back to Anne with the definitive air that closes a matter. Jessie didn't come with you then? he inquired, turning toward his wife. No, poor thing. She is away down this morning. Why, what do you think, Walworth? They've been asking her if she can't testify. Testify? Fiddlesticks. What could she say? They don't need her. They've got a clear enough case as it is. But think of her in court. Don't think of her in court. She may be a thousand miles away by the time the thing comes up. Has anything more been seen or heard of that interesting vocalist? Nothing. He left the poor child all alone in that big place with not three days' supplies and the... She looked sharply over towards Cornelia. The girl's hour was ended, but she had engaged in a pretense of tidying up the desk. Anne creased her papers thoughtfully between her fingers. I had no idea that curbstones cost so much, she sighed. If I had only sold out on that offer last month. Cornelia was now engaged in complicating her apron strings. Her interest in the underground people, while becoming no less professional, had become a good deal more personal. She would have given anything for a decent pretext to remain. It was hard indeed to tear herself away from this discussion of the affairs of Burton Brainard's sister. And the gas turned off, Mrs. Floyd finished as the door closed on the reluctant girl. And that's the state Jessie found her in, everything just about as bad as it could be. Well, no, Floyd dissented thoughtfully. There's one important consolation. This suit could be brought. Oh, yes, answered his wife quickly. This Canadian woman doesn't claim to be his wife, only that she ought to be, and that he promised to make her so. Interesting family, murmured Walworth. Should like to be related to him. She knew him in Toronto. She found him here before she had been in town a week. Small world, remarked Walworth negligently. He played with his penholders. Mrs. Floyd became silent. Gossip seemed out of the question with an indifferent husband and a preoccupied sister. Vibert's detection by the girl he had betrayed and discarded, and his desertion of his young wife, were immediately followed by the proper steps on the part of Brainard's attorneys. The old man had received the intelligence of Vibert's double misdeed with a tremendous outburst of wrath and vituperation. His indignation revived in him all the crude violence of his youth. He drew out from the disused corners of his memory such a vocabulary and such turns of phrase as are possible only to one whose boyhood has been spent on the crass and barbaric frontier. He towered and swayed like a rank plant that has sprung rapidly from the earth and has brought up the slime and mold on its sheath and stalk. 
His prodigal and picturesque indecencies were heard but half understandingly by his son, and were lost as to everything save their animus on his advisers. The equilibrium of the scales, whose mathematical poise he had once proven to his own satisfaction, was now destroyed. This outrage on his daughter and himself and all his belongings put another and a different face on the matter. The girl was received back into her father's house. It was the understanding that she was to remain there until the legal undoing of all this mischief had been accomplished, and that afterwards she must prepare herself for an indefinite exile among certain of her father's relatives still resident in Centralia. During this interval, Brainard allowed himself only the minimum of communication with his daughter. His mother's fluttering sympathies were too tenuous and too faded to furnish anything very definite or vivid in the way of consolation. Her brother did not readily abandon himself to the softer feelings, particularly when work of so much sterner character was before them, and but for her sister, this crushed and unfortunate child would have received but slender support and comfort. Abby was not only sister, but mother and family circle too. She found a use for all the pent-up tenderness and domesticity of her nature. The bill in the case of Viber versus Viber was filed without receiving any undue attention from the press. Some exertions were taken, some influence was used, and the matter merely made a cold official numerical appearance in the legal columns of such of the dailies as affect complete court reports. The relations between Vibert and Jane Doan, however, made too good a story to be ignored in every quarter. Some brief mention of it appeared in a new and struggling one-cent evening paper. The friends and well-wishers of the Brainards were surprised by the extent of that paper's circulation. A good many people appeared to have seen it. The case of Vibert versus Vibert had its place near the head of a short docket and was reached with much less than the usual delay. It was tried quietly and privately rather late one afternoon at a sitting which might have been termed either a prolongation of the regular session or a supplement to it. Perhaps only a legal mind could have distinguished. Probably the legal mind that dominated the occasion did not attempt the distinction. The matter was adjusted in a small and compact courtroom high up in a certain vast and pillared pile, a room which differed little in size and not greatly in furnishings from an ordinary office. The court reporters and the crowd of court loungers had withdrawn. Nobody remained behind save the clerk and a bailiff or two. Yet the specter of publicity seemed hovering there. It hurled a flood of glaring light in through the high and curtainless windows. It shimmered on the staring yellow oak furnishings of bench and bar, and it searched out the darkest corner of the yawning jury box. Abby Brainard, standing beside her sister, peopled all this void with jargoning lawyers and callous constables and malicious witnesses and indifferent jurymen and sharp-witted reporters and trivial time-killing spectators, and then she set her unveiled sister in that revolving witness chair and brought to bear upon her the searching glare from the lofty windows and the more pitiless glare of the thousand-eyed crowd. She shuddered and thanked heaven, without going too deeply beneath the surface of things, that present conditions were so favorable. For they involved none of the ordinary phenomenon of a trial. There was no wrangling, no eloquence, no auditory. There was no humiliation beyond that which was inevitable. 
It was hardly more than a conference. The judge, with a quiet gravity, took a simple conversational tone, a keynote to which the indignation of Bert, the mortification of his sister, the sorrow of Jane Doan, and the juvenility of Freddie Pratt all came to be attuned. There was a simple recital of uncombated facts. The separation was decreed, and Mary Vibert was presently at liberty to resume her maiden name. It was considered best that she be known henceforth as Mrs. Mary Brainerd. There was no report in the next day's papers, nor the next. On the third day, things took a different turn. One or two of the newspapers had sacrificed the Viber Doan story with considerable reluctance. They felt a certain degree of martyrdom, too, in withholding their hand from Brainard, who had been a standard subject of attack throughout the careers of all the younger riders. Nor were they at all sure that their position as guardians of the public morals justified any such suppression of the truth. They learned of the clandestine trial of the Viber case, and that decided them. Their virtue was strengthened. The whole affair was reopened and thoroughly ventilated. The encroachments of wealth and privilege were held up before the alarmed eyes of the public. The entire episode, with everything leading up to it, was minutely rehearsed. A good many people were interviewed. A few who knew something of the circumstances, a good many who did not. Repertorial requisitions were also made on the bank and the house. Some persons contributed facts relating to the matter in hand, Others, facts relating to matters whose connection was not so close. Still others volunteered opinions on the method of procedure that made the trial noteworthy. Vox Populi and Ruet Colum wrote letters to the editor. Rough cuts from sketches and photographs made their appearance. The whole career of Brainard was reviewed with merciless detail, and the issue of one edition of a particular publication was attended with the shouting of his name through the streets. Certain sheets, whose existence is unknown to the majority of reputable people, and whose circulation is in accordance therewith, gave their clients a scarehead full of exclamation points, and one pink publication, whose single connection with respectability is through the barber shops, devoted its whole front page to the illustration of the case. The wronged girl claimed her surpliced betrayer at the altar rail, while the equally wronged wife swooned in a front pew. There was an appropriate gothic background, while one corner of the foreground, piquant touch of innocence, was filled in by an open-eyed choir boy. All these manifestations of public interest caused Ogden a keen personal distress that surprised him. He heard the names of Brainard and Viber bald in the streets. He became familiar, for the first time, with the salient points in Brainard's career. He heard himself referred to once or twice as a clerk in Bernard's bank. As he handled that pink sheet in the Clifton barber shop while awaiting his turn, he half expected some acquaintance to brand him as a caller at Bernard's house. As he lay lathered and defenseless in his chair, he almost dreaded lest some pitiless friend might happen in and stamp him as a suitor for the hand of Bernard's daughter. He paused and blushed under the barber's eye. He saw now the reason for his personal distress over these odious domestic entanglements. His surprise passed away, but it left behind it a distress greater still. End of chapter 12 Recording by Lynette Calkins, Monument, Colorado